Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Reardon, and with me as always is Betsy Taylor. She is the editor of Health Progress. Hello, Betsy. Hey, Brian. Good to be with you today. Good to be with you. And so Health Progress, uh, we've got a new issue coming up. It's looking at uh, what we've learned from COVID, and that has been sort of a common theme over the last two years for this podcast. Uh, In one of the uh, articles in this new issue, uh, there's a title, it's called Your Care Provider Can See You Now, Pandemic Prompts, New Approaches in Telehealth. Tell us a little bit about that, because that is going to be the topic that we're going to discuss today. Sure. So as I'm sure our listeners know, um, we've been spending a lot of time taking a look at um, care changes um, that have happened during the pandemic. And this issue, we're trying to get a sense for sort of what may stay and what may fall away over time. This article um, by Robin Ronker takes a look at how telehealth has shifted um, during the pandemic. And what she found um, talking to several Catholic healthcare systems is that um, while many systems had robust programs heading into this, um, it really became a necessity to provide telehealth and quickly. So she um, explores sort of how systems ramped up. Um, and as I think both of our guests are going to talk about today, um, she t- explores how COVID care um, got tied into telehealth and how uh, systems have really been able to monitor thousands of people um, during a time when that care has been so needed. Yeah, and our guests uh, for this episode, first we have Sandy Dealman. She is the CEO of Avera at Home. Hi, Sandy. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. And then we also have Dr. Carter Fenton. He's medical director of Mercy's V Acute. Uh, Carter, thanks for being with us. I appreciate you having me. So one of the questions we had for both of you today is uh, we're wondering, what has COVID taught us about providing virtual care? So I think um, COVID really forced us as a health system to think very, very differently as many health systems across the country are doing the same thing. Um, We leverage telehealth and um, some equipment um, to be able to respond very, very quickly to the pandemic. Our um, senior leaders got together early on when we saw the tsunami of patients coming at us and really were wondering how are we going to take care of patients and avoid um, our hospitals and EDs to be overwhelmed. We had a um, really more telephonic program that we had already started to take care of post-hospitalized patients to um, reduce readmissions. And we use that platform along with uh, remote patient monitoring telehealth equipment to uh, very quickly stand up a COVID monitoring program. So we um, used either the telephone or our equipment to take care of now over the two years, over 8,000 patients um, with home oxygen, with medications, and with daily touch points from um, nurses, either again through telephone or through the equipment that we were very successful in keeping patients out of our EDs, out of our hospitals. Um, Yeah, the technology has um, really accelerated, and I think COVID just made us think outside the box as to how we can do things differently. And Carter, how about what you've seen at Mercy? Yeah, so I would would basically uh, echo a a lot of what was said there is that, uh, you know, we, we happened to be fortunate, I guess, timing was good enough. Mercy had just stood up. Uh, a program that was 24 seven. We had a board certified emergency medicine position kind of anchoring the uh, virtual team. And six weeks later, COVID hit. And so this fledgling program that was just really in its infancy, um, 
was was sitting at ready, and we were able to adapt some of the other program uh, features that we had used before. Again, patient outreach uh, via text messaging, phone calls, um, as a means to support COVID um, patients, and we we also developed a COVID uh, COVID follow up program um, where patients would receive text messaging from us. But we had a similar kind of sister program um, that was meant for CHF, uh, COPD, asthma, and really chronic patients that we were able to morph dramatically. And, and we went from enrollment of roughly 170 patients to we're currently and have been at for some time, roughly 10 to 12,000 patients at any given point in time. So it, it taught us that telehealth was truly a viable option, which which we knew kind of from the telehealth perspective, we knew it. It's just it, getting everybody else to kind of see that um, was always one of the challenges we anticipated. Um, but once COVID hit, we were able to really refine that process to support the COVID patients, but it really helped um, refine the other programs that were outreach programs that patients just became suddenly accustomed to. And so I think what COVID did is it launched us into the new norm um, in a time frame that we thought was going to take several years. It launched us pretty quickly, and the adoption um, was was swift, uh, and it's I believe here to stay as part of the healthcare delivery uh, that a healthcare system can provide. And for both of you, um, as you were describing, uh, both programs are both sort of how you're deploying this. Really, the technology, it's not like this is, um, there were huge advantages. I think, it, Sandy, you said, you know, telephonic, which to me says, if you have a phone line you can hook up, um, mm-hmm. there's data, there's, you know, monitoring that can be done remotely. So for the average person out there that just may think of telehealth as being some sort of, uh, you know, virtual reality, let's say, it really, it's, it's, it's like you said, uh, Carter, technology that's been around, but the moment, this moment in time with the pandemic really... Uh, put it to the forefront of saying, hey, here's technology that's already existed. It's not overly complicated or that advanced, but it's really leveraging what's been around for decades, essentially, and using it as the moment called for, correct? Yeah, I, I would agree. And, you know, I, I go back, My um, I'm third generation physician from a rural community. And, you know, urgent cares didn't exist. And the, the hospital was only meant for when you're really, really sick. So you actually relied on the phone call to your doctor to determine what you needed to do. Um, and so honestly, I say we've advanced and we've moved forward. We've gotten through the realm where house calls weren't the norm and phone calls kind of got broken apart because you have so many access points for care for, for a lot of the population, but not all with urgent care, convenient care, et cetera. Um, we've actually reverted back to, to the call and a house call. We've just used the technology to really advance it. And, you know, a big part of why we're able to function here at Mercy is that we're all on the Epic system. So uh, this supports all of the thousands of patients within Mercy. So we have in our fingertips the electronic medical record with the entire history. We have the most recent specialist notes, the primary care physician notes. Um, and we can function off of a simple telephone call because there's so much more behind it than the individual knowledge of the physician talking to the patient. We now have all of the, the knowledge base of all the, the patients, um, physicians and providers ready for us to review to help us drive the next steps of care. 
And a lot of the work that we are doing is for rural patients who don't necessarily have a cell phone. We're still using landline and a plain phone call, but we can take it to the level of those that happen to have access to a smartphone, we can do a video visit. Um, if they happen to have a pulse ox, which many people now have just have a pulse ox after COVID, they've realized the importance. So we don't even have to rely on shipping out our own equipment. So the public has advanced themselves to have those devices on the ready. If they don't, they can often get one quickly from a neighbor or family member. So um, we're not having to provide the equipment for remote monitoring. It's already there in the patient's hands. Um, so it's it's really the public and the patients have adapted to it and realized the value and, again, take it upon themselves to kind of arm themselves and get prepared for it. And we've adapted as well. So it, it's been a, a learning experience for, for both parties. But I, I would say that I think both sides of the fence agree that it's working. Yeah, we've definitely seen the full gamut of the technology as well. Um, like Carter's program, we can do basic monitoring with a pulse oximeter and phone calls, and we can use equipment. But then we've also seen the other end of the spectrum where we have entered into the CMS waiver program for acute hospital at home as well. Um, I know a lot of other health systems across the country are, are starting to do that work right now as well. But we have, um, you know, radiology and lab and all of these other technologies that we can do in the in the home as well. And I, it does just show the breadth and depth of the technology that can be utilized. Carter, I know when you were speaking, you mentioned um, some heart conditions and some respiratory conditions as things that Mercy already has programs to monitor people at home. Are, are both of you finding that there are some conditions um, or diseases that are um, better managed this way? And are there some where the person really needs the um, sort of the office visits? Um, and I guess, Sandy, why don't we start with you on that one? Yeah, some of the um, diagnosis that we're finding um, maybe most uh, best suited for hospital at home would be um, CHF, chronic heart failure, COPD, pneumonia, cellulitis, even urinary tract infections. Um, if they are super complex or need a lot, a lot of consults, then we're, we're advising them to take the traditional hospital route. Yeah, we've, we've seen that, you know, there, with congestive heart failure and COPD and asthma, these are chronic conditions. And um, those conditions that are chronic mean they're always going to be there, uh, but you will have, you, you can anticipate that there might be a flare-up or a, a deterioration of kind of baseline condition. So because of the way our programs are set up, and we have a chronic care program that's much more in-depth with the remote patient monitoring, daily vital signs, et cetera, but we also took it down to a, a lower level to get a broader um, group of patients into the program. But the, these scenarios, if the alerting of the patient to the team and kind of the monitoring is early enough, we can often stop that progressive decline in the moment. So we, we call it a flare-up. So if they're, if they're starting to, to gain and retain some fluid when they have congestive heart failure, if we can intervene quickly and start to uh, adjust their diuretics and their medication management, we may pull that fluid off, preventing that need for um, hospital stay, possibly ICU stay. Same thing with COPD. So it's really timely intervention is a key, key factor here. Um, but those disease states have very kind of predictable patterns associated with them. Uh, as Sandy pointed out, some do get com complex to the level of like, no, that this is really going to need the intensity of the 
because of the um, diagnostics that will have to take place, the consultant-based and the kind of the collaboration. But many of these are, are fairly straightforward and, again, have just this predictability about the course of, that they're going to run. And that's why they're so – this is kind of what we call the low-hanging fruit when it comes to medical management in the home because we can, we can really approach a broad group of these patients and do a very good job at this management. Yeah, I know. And I think you said low-hanging fruit. It reminded me of, uh, I guess what we'll call it low-hanging vegetable. I heard a story from a cardiologist that was doing a – congestive heart failure, a home monitoring thing. And, and the nurse that was monitoring it noticed, you know, a spike in weight and they were retaining water. And so they called the patient up and, and they learned that they had switched from uh, frozen green beans to canned green beans. So the sodium level went up. So it was a simple thing like that, that where they were able to intervene. Again, they didn't, that patient didn't have to come into the emergency room. Um, I'm wondering, with that in mind, so really this requires, obviously, you've got medical professionals monitoring remotely, getting all these vitals, getting the data, uh, using, uh, I think you mentioned, Carter, you know, electronic health records and EPIC system, for example. But you need the patient also, I think, to be very engaged, participating. Has that been an issue at all when, when you you see patients that have uh, signed up or been um, prescribed, I guess, you know, a telehealth a monitoring program, whether it be for congestive heart failure or whatever, how important is that that patient and I guess their their family and their loved ones with them at home uh, being engaged with the care providers? I can't overstate the importance. Um, it, it is extremely necessary, uh, as I call it. It's it's a I always say it's like we have to have a willing participant uh, because this is a novel concept, um, but really you're only as successful as as much effort is placed on both parties. Um, and we have had patients that just really have not engaged well um, and their outcomes weren't as great because it is. It's, when it comes to chronic conditions, it's a maintenance plan. Um, it's not a one-time fix. It's, it's a matter of titrating the medications to get them appropriate, uh, frequent conversations to make sure that things are doing well, that we don't need to jump on top of a flare-up uh, in the early phases, et cetera. And, and family is very important, too. Um, again, I, all parties need to feel comfortable that what we're doing is um, good for them, safe for them. Um, as has been brought up before, you know, to, do people think it's not as safe? Um, the nice part is, and why we actually have uh, the support of a doc, and I, I'm pretty sure I've, I've done some research on Avera. They've got a lot of physicians behind the scenes. It's like, we, we often know which patients clearly are not good candidates for the program, and uh, we always put the patient first um, and err on the side of caution, but it does. It takes uh, a participation from, from both sides uh, to really make this work. I think, too, it, it strikes me that the flip um, must also be true, that if someone is really isolated um, at home, um, you know, unable to get out of their house easily. Um, I've been to the Mercy Virtual Center a couple of times over the years, and it strikes me that it's, it's just also it's a real connection for people, you know, to have someone on the other end of their screen asking about their day, checking on how they're feeling, um, going over, you know, anything that's come up that seems like might need a little management. So it, it also, I mean, at a time when so many people can feel cut off, it also can provide a connection, I, I would imagine. Yeah, we definitely see that. Um, our patients are definitely engaged. Our patients look forward to that daily phone call. Um, and especially if they have remote, remote monitoring equipment, 
they can see their vital signs. They kind of know even before they talk to the nurse what's going to happen. So we see patient engagement um, really, really increase um, through these types of models. Yeah, let me ask about the reimbursement issue because I've read that um, obviously there were some waivers done at the CMS level for some telehealth visits during covid you know, there's a question about whether those will be made permanent, but it, it seemed to me that that was a bit of a barrier for the adoption of the technology that has been available and really using that to its full potential. Um, but my understanding is the reimbursement thing really kind of, there's, there's a lot of um, nuances to that. So I guess my question is, is inadequate reimbursement either through private insurance or the government, has that been a barrier to really wider spread adoption of, of telehealth? Well, I think when you talk about reimbursement for telehealth services, I'm not talking about physician virtual visits now, but really telehealth services, um, it, it really depends. It's fairly complex. Um, so within our health system, we're using kind of three different approaches. Um, first being grant model. We have received a grant to um, do some CHF monitoring and really the chronic um, care model that Carter was talking about. Um, we're diving into that uh, pretty deep and excited to see what uh, results we can get with that. We're also using it in a value-based um, arrangement with our ACO populations. Again, trying to reduce total cost of care by being proactive and try to um, avoid the flare-ups, as Carter mentioned, uh, before they exacerbate and somebody needs to go into the hospital. And then kind of on the traditional fee-for-service side, um, what we have seen on traditional remote patient monitoring, there are there is re reimbursement for that, um, but as uh, typically goes with reimbursement, it's probably not quite adequate enough. Um, there's a lot of costs to a program like this besides just the person with the phone call and just the equipment. So um, reimbursement isn't quite where it needs to be. Um, and then on the hospital at home side, like I said earlier, it is under right now a waiver where we are approved to get the DRG payment for care in the home, but it, everybody's kind of waiting, waiting to see what CMS is going to do with that uh, post-pandemic, if they will uh, continue with the waiver or make it a permanent part um, of the healthcare delivery model, or, or if it'll go away. Health systems are going to have big decisions to make um, if, that, if that does happen. Sandy, what's DRG? Diagnosis resource grouper, that's how the hospitals get paid for um, an episodic uh, patient. Okay, thanks. Um, patient care in the hospital. I'm probably the only one on the podcast who didn't know that one. No, but I'm sure we threw acronyms <laughs> out gave in, me in the pause. medical community like crazy. It's like we're addicted to acronyms. Uh, Carter, what, what about you from a reimbursement perspective? How do you see that shaking out? Yeah, Mercy's fortunate enough uh, because of the sheer size that we are, um, you know, there is a strategic initiative years ago, which put in, it put in place the plan and blueprints for the virtual care center with the goal of providing value-based care uh, for some of these uh, at-risk contracts. And so Mercy is responsible for many different groups of patients um, and the, their care from their coworkers to ACO to some of these risk-based uh, contracts we have. So again, trying to find a better way to care for patients um, that doesn't cost as much. So we're not as on the hook so much for the reimbursement piece, but to your original question, do you think this hindered other groups from following into it? And I would have to say yes, because 
Um, smaller healthcare systems, we've talked to plenty who have tried to set some of these programs up. If you don't have the scale uh, that a Mercy does, um, it could be very costly because you, and then you really need to find some way to, to bring in revenue to offset those costs. So reimbursement and the recognition that it's an important part of it, I think will hopefully prompt um, other systems into exploring what, what options do exist that are sustainable. Um, so again, it hasn't necessarily affected us that much. We continue to look at it and see what the, what the future holds. Um, but for the smaller groups, I think it's a very powerful tool to know that you will actually get reimbursed for the work you're doing and the money you invest in it. Another issue that I know is of great concern to, to our members and to healthcare providers across the country is, uh, what the workforce is going to look like going forward. There's obviously been a lot of burnout, um, stress among our providers who've been, you know, at it now for two years. And so I guess my question is with, with the telehealth um, technology and capabilities, does it factor in at all and from both of your opinion on whether that could help alleviate, uh, for example, nurse staffing shortages um, or does it not, is that not much of a factor? I guess I'm, I'm curious how the workforce future of healthcare uh, will be affected or not be affected by uh, telehealth services. Well, I think in the future, we'll be able to take care of a lot of patients and keep them at home, hopefully keep them stable for a really long time through these types of models. I think the advantage um, that it could um, bring to our workforce challenges, if people are burnt out, if nurses are burnt out with bedside caregiving, this type of telehealth work is still using their clinical uh, critical thinking skills, but using them in a different way. But they definitely have to be open to trying something new, uh, being willing to um, do work a different way. So I see that it could be an advantage um, to keep those people, uh, the nurse, nurse workforce engaged in a different care model, if that's something that interests them. It might not be something that is would be a good fit for them, but it might be a really good fit for those um, that want to explore a different kind of nursing and a diff different kind of patient engagement. Yeah, I would agree. I, th I think it's creating m many more options for healthcare providers and, and knowing that they have options. You know, it's, it's for the traditional um, hospital staff from the RN to the tech to, to anyone that works in the hospital setting. A lot of times there's not much in the way of options. You know, the ambulatory care space is more of a Monday through Friday, um, kind of eight hour a day. And this is a team that's been accustomed to doing 12 hour shifts and kind of, it's just different types of work. But one of the things that as our department started to grow, we basically offered 12 hour shifts, no different than the hospital type setting. Uh, it's kind of acute care, it's fast paced. So again, it offered a different type of care, similar in nature, but much different. Um, and it, it created, again, options. And I, I think knowing as a healthcare provider, knowing that you do have options and you're not really stuck, quote unquote, in one particular position is very enticing. And uh, so hopefully it will, again, expand kind of the um, opportunities uh, for all of these care providers. And, uh, and we definitely know that it does give those that physically, at, you know, as, as we all age in healthcare, uh, the physicality associated with it uh, starts to take its toll. And this is a, a means to remove some of the physicality, but really use the clinical skills and experience that have been gained in all those years in the in-person setting. 
I'm wondering, too, if um, if you're involving uh, chaplains, if people can get um, spiritual care visits this way, um, when it comes to things like social determinants of health, if there's a social worker who can be consulted, if someone, you know, is having trouble keeping their lights on, um, their heat on. Um, and so I'm just I'm curious about um, where you see this headed, if, if some of those larger issues that we know are so important to maintaining people's health can be addressed through telehealth. We have not engaged um, a chaplain yet, to my knowledge, but we have engaged the social work component, um, which has been very successful. Um, as we know, a lot of those factors are really predominant in, you know, figuring out what the outcome is going to be for the patient. So that has been very, very successful. We're also dabbling and thinking about trying to integrate um, or if it would be a good fit for a community health worker. Again, that would be more in-person visits with these folks, but um, trying to think about how that could be incorporated into our telehealth programs as well. Yes, we've been fortunate enough to actually have chaplains as part of our uh, core team, as well as social workers. uh, along the way, because it, it, it is, there's um, the phone calls much easier than driving in person, going to see somebody. And so it gives you a quick glimpse into somebody's um, situation, which often may not be identified. You know, an in-person visit is going to be a very focused, detailed visit, but it may miss some of these key things, whereas a, a phone call becomes that easy opportunity for a, a patient to reach out. And actually, even part of our uh, COVID monitoring home, we'll, we'll send a text reaching out to really inquire how somebody's doing kind of from the mental health perspective and at least offer that opportunity. But uh, we do see that as an ever important uh, piece of it and, and a driving force for, for healthcare. Uh, may not necessarily be health itself, but just the, the mental and the social components and uh, all of those aspects that may get overlooked with a quick visit, say, to an ER or urgent care um, for that type of care. Oh, interesting. Well, in the, the few minutes that we have left, um, we've talked about how really existing technology that's been around has really been leveraged pretty successfully to reach more patients, uh, particularly in this time of COVID. I guess I'd ask you both to, to kind of look to the future. What, what do you see on the horizon? And I'm wondering, you know, we, I kind of joked about, you know, virtual reality headsets earlier, but I mean, is that something, are holograms in homes? I mean, what, what, is, what is the future of healthcare uh, in a telehealth setting or, or hospital care, healthcare in a person's home? What does that look like to both of you uh, five years from now? Well, I, I think the technology will only continue to expand and um, get more and more sophisticated. Uh, we've seen a lot of advances already in the equipment that we've used over the years, um, cheaper, better, more sophisticated. Um, I think we'll see um, sensors fall detection. We'll see more advancements in pill dispensers, um, activity monitors, um, more and more diagnostics that can be uh, very cheap and effective um, to, again, be proactive to keep people um, out of more expensive care settings. And I think it um, really just supports uh, more and more patient engagement. I think if people have that immediate, you know, how am I doing? What what are, what outcomes am I working for here? I think they're going to be very successful clinically. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the so one of the big things we focused on here too has always been kind of the predictive nature and and is there a device? Is there some kind of in-home monitoring that can provide that predictive? Um, that 
you know, the patient themselves don't pick up on, a clinician would have trouble picking up on. And there, there have been great advancements in that. And, and those, those alert you before there's even a problem um, that's evident to anyone. And so that, that's a big plus, which then makes uh, doing hospital at home type of care much easier because you can intervene, but it's, it's always trying to correct a disaster uh, when the patient's unfortunately waited too late is much harder than, than trying to intervene when, when you have the opportunity to do so. Um, but I, I think from the virtual aspect, we'll have a lot more of, of the devices where patients can use, which actually allow us to listen to their lungs at home, where we struggle to do so in, in current setting, uh, listen to their heart, uh, really kind of get to the level that many people kind of question from the virtual perspective, how can you do it without X, Y, and Z? I think those gaps will be filled um, as we progress through the telehealth path. So, Betsy, what's uh, fascinating? This has been a really interesting conversation. I'm going to see if Betsy has any last thoughts or words on this topic. Uh, I also I, I think it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, certainly the ability to care for so many patients at a time when um, it was life saving over the last two years is uh Obviously, super important. And I'm just thinking about my smart home of the future where I'm going to never fall down so no one knows I'm on the kitchen floor and my heart rate's getting monitored and it's uh, it's going to be a whole new world out there. Um, but it's it's great to hear about the work you're doing. And, you know, it's great that technology can be leveraged in this way to really help um, thousands, if not uh significantly more people with their care. No, and I think all of us, you know, that were the, the smart watches, how much that is, you know, whether it's fitness tracking or you can you can monitor your heart rate. So, yeah, I think there's just an amazing amount of potential. And it's so reassuring to hear how our members, you know, are also, it's not just technology for technology's sake, but really using it to extend uh, the care of our organization. So I commend both of you for your, your good work in this area and appreciate you taking time to be with us to, to talk through some of this with us. So for uh, Betsy, uh, I am Brian Reardon, and our guests, again, were Sandy Dieleman from Avera at Home. She's the CEO of that, of that uh, program. And then Dr. Carter Fenton, he's the medical director of Mercy's V Acute. Thank you both for uh, sharing your insights with us on this episode, and appreciate your time. Pleasure being Thank here. You. Thank you so much. And again, for Betsy Taylor, I'm Brian Reardon, and this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Until next time, we'll talk to you.